0: and my father as a boy would go out to uh, spy on my grandfather see what he was up to and on one particular occasion he went out and as he was walking around the buses and looking and observing he spied uh, an opened soda bottle and uh, without hesitating without asking without questioning uh without thinking he went over to that soda bottle and took a big gulp it wasn't doctor pepper It wasn't Sprite. It wasn't iced tea. It was gasoline. (laughs) Appearances can be deceiving. Uh, All that glitters is not gold. And how, especially in our day, uh, we need discernment. Uh, We need a great insight. We need wisdom from above. Uh, We need the ability to discern between what is good, what is bad, what is true, what is error, what is right, what is wrong. And so the title for this morning's message is very simple. It is judging with right judgment, judging with right judgment. And our text for today is found in John chapter seven. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to that portion of God's word. If you were here last Sunday you may remember that I noted three scenes in this chapter we can divide it into three scenes the first is found in verses 1 through 13 uh, Christ's absence from the start of the feast that is the feast of booths in Jerusalem Christ's absence from the feast the second scene begins in verse 14 and goes right through to verse 36 Christ's appearance in the middle of the feast and then the third scene is found in verse 37 continues to the end of the chapter verse 52 Christ's appeal at the end of the feast and so today we're going to consider that second scene in particular what it means to judge with right judgment and I invite you to follow along as I begin reading God's word in verse 14. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a whole a man's whole body. Well, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. What we have in these verses, and undoubtedly you noticed it as I read them for us, is a discussion, a debate. And this debate basically, simply put, focuses on three issues, three subjects. There are basically three points of debate. The first point of debate in verses 14 through 24 focuses on Christ's authority He appears, we read in verse 14, at the temple. He begins to teach. What's the response? Verse 15, the Jews marvel. They're astonished. Why? Look at what they ask in verse 15. How is it that this man has learning? How is it that this man is so insightful? How is it that this man is so knowledgeable how is it that this man is so wise when he has never studied? And so they're astonished, dumbfounded at Christ's wisdom, at Christ's teaching. And so the Lord Jesus explains why in verse 16 he says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Here's why I have learning having never studied. Here's why I am so wise, so knowledgeable, so insightful. It is because my teaching is from God. My teaching is of divine origin. I come from God. Therefore, what I speak comes from God. But you don't understand that uh, you're all flabbergasted. You're all confused You're all astonished by my teaching. And here's why you're astonished is because you do not acknowledge the divine origin of my teaching. And why don't you acknowledge the divine origin of my teaching? He explains why in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And so the reason you do not understand is because you are not in a right relationship with God. Your minds cannot grasp that which your heart despises. You cannot grasp my divine origin. You cannot grasp the divine origin of my teaching. You cannot perceive God's stamp upon my teaching. Here's why. To understand divine truth. To perceive the divine origin of what I am saying necessitates that you be in a right relationship with God. You hate God. You don't desire to do his will. Therefore, you do not understand. You do not acknowledge. You do not perceive the divine authority behind all that I say. And he proves it. He proves that they do not desire to do God's will. How? Look at what he says in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Their obvious answer would be, you betcha. Yes, we have the law. We love it. It's fantastic. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. And here I'll prove it. Why do you seek to kill me? If, if you loved God and if your desire was to obey God, you would keep the law. You obviously don't keep the law. Oh, you worked yourselves up into a tizzy when I visited here previously. I healed the lame man on the Sabbath, and in the name of the law, you hounded me like a dog. You gave me no peace. You were all, work, you worked yourselves into a frenzy, arguing that I had broken the law. Well here, let's see facts as they stand clearly before us. I know the intent of your heart. It is to kill me. How's that for keeping the law? You are haters of God, is what he's telling them. You despise God. You do not desire to do his will. And therefore, you do not perceive. You cannot grasp where my teaching comes from. He doesn't leave it at that. He won't let go. He says in verse 21, I did one deed, one deed, and you all marvel at it. What's he talking about? It's back in chapter 5. That's the context. When he was previously in Jerusalem, and he walked beside the pool of Bethesda, And there was that lame man, lame for 38 years. How many years? 38 years. And the Lord Jesus fixed his gaze upon him and commanded him to stand up, pick up his bed and walk. Why weren't the Jews astonished? Why weren't the Jews amazed? 38 years this man had been lame. No, no, no. What are they all concerned about? Why are, you, why, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? Who, who told you to get up and carry your bed on the Sabbath? Why did you heal on the Sabbath? That's all they're concerned about. They do not perceive the significance of what is unfolding before their very eyes. All they are concerned about is that the Sabbath has been broken. And so what does the Lord Jesus say in verse 22? Look, Moses gave you circumcision. It wasn't really Moses. It was the fathers, right? Circumcision was given back in Genesis 17 to Abraham. Well... If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. In other words, you know the commandment. God gave it to Abraham. Once an infant reaches eight days of age, that boy is to be circumcised. Well, here's the thing. God gave circumcision to Abraham on the eighth day. The boy is to be circumcised. God gave the law to Moses, uh, uh, commanding the Israelites to observe the Sabbath. Here's the thing. At times, the eighth day lands on the Sabbath. Doesn't it? At times, a little infant, a little boy, reaches his eighth day, and it's the Sabbath. And what do you do? You circumcise him. You usurp the law in order to circumcise that infant. Okay, if on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. Oh, you are so confused. You will usurp the law to circumcise a man. That physical circumcision pointing to his need for spiritual circumcision, the new birth. And yet, I heal an entire man's body on the Sabbath. Pointing again to regeneration. God is now visiting you. What that spiritual circumcision pointed to and what my healing power points to you is that salvation now walks among you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is able to heal the soul and you work yourselves up into this frenzy. You work yourselves up into this heat whereby you're prepared to put me to death. Because I have healed a man on a Sabbath. So what does he say in verse 24? Oh, do not judge by appearances. But judge with right judgment. Right judgment. That's the first point of debate. The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second point of debate. Beginning in verse 25. It carries on through more or less to verse 30. This point focuses on Christ's Origin. Where does this man come from? And so we read in verse 25 that some of the people of Jerusalem, they begin to say among themselves, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So evidently, some people don't know about the plot to kill Jesus, that we see that back in verse 20. The crowd answers the Lord Jesus when the Lord Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? Some of the crowd says you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So part of the crowd does not know of this plot. But some of the people do. And so they ask in verse 25, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? But here he is, verse 26, speaking openly and they say nothing to him. So we know they want to kill him. There he is teaching in the temple openly. Why don't they do something? Why don't the Jews arrest him? And so what do they begin to reason to themselves? In the latter part of verse 26, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? In other words, are, are they having a change of heart? Have they changed their opinion? Have they changed their mind? Because we know of the plot. We know what their intent is. There he is. He's been teaching now here for a couple of days. Why don't they do something? Have they changed their minds? Verse 27, but we haven't. We haven't changed our mind. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. What is, what is That sounds a little bit like gibberish. What is going on there? It's it's what's known as a syllogism. I'm not going to bore you with that this morning. But a syllogism is made up of two premises and a conclusion. And so these people think to themselves, first premise. We know according to our tradition. We know according to our tradition that when the Christ comes... When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he comes from. That's the first premise, according to our tradition. Second premise, we know where this man Jesus comes from. Conclusion, he can't be the Christ. He can't be the Messiah. And so what does the Lord Jesus say in response? Verse 28, he proclaims as he teaches in the temple, you know me. and You think you know me. You think you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. So the reason you do not perceive my divine authority and the divine origin of my teaching is the same reason why you do not recognize and acknowledge where I come from, from God. It is because you do not know God. The heart must be in a right relationship with God before the mind can perceive the authority behind the Lord Jesus Christ, the origin of the Lord Jesus Christ, and for that matter, the entire truth of God. And then there's a third point of debate, beginning more or less verse 31 through to verse 36. Some of the people believe in Him. They reason to themselves. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Is this saving faith or temporary faith? Is this saving faith or simply a carnal faith? Time will tell. But the Pharisees catch wind of it anyway. Verse 32, they catch wind of this excitement. They catch wind of the enthusiasm. They hear the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him as they're approaching. Jesus declares, verse 33, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And so there is in the first place a debate concerning the origin of his teaching, the authority of his teaching. There is in the second place a debate concerning where he has come from, God. And now there is thirdly this debate concerning where he is going. He declares it openly where I am going, you cannot come. He is going back to God. How do the Jews respond? Verse 35, they begin to say to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? What's he talking about? Is it the dispersion? We know the Jews are dispersed among the Greeks Is he going to leave Palestine geographically, territorially and go to other geographical areas and begin to teach among the Greeks? Well, if that's where he's going, well, then why wouldn't we be able to find him? We could follow him. Word will get back to us. We could go as well. Verse 36. What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. They're clueless. Absolutely clueless. Because just as they don't perceive. His authority, just as they don't perceive his origin, neither do they perceive his departure and his destiny when he will return to his father. And the reason they don't get any of this is because they are not in a right relationship with God. Let me insert a little bit of a thought here this morning. Insert a little bit of a warning. If you are here this morning and, uh, and you are not a Christian, you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I'm not saying this to be harsh. I'm saying it simply to be to be true and, and to be true to God's word. These verses describe you. This is a character sketch right here. This is what God's word says about your state, your condition right now. You're estranged from God, separated from him, alienated. God's word says from the life of God. And because you are estranged from God, you have no desire, you have no ability to do His will. On the contrary, you have sinned against Him. God's Word makes it clear that there must be a transformation. There must be a change in the heart in order to perceive the truth of God The gospel of God and His call and His invitation to you to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to repent of your sin. We have a fantastic description of this. First Thessalonians chapter one, Paul gives thanksgiving for the believers in Thessalonica, the church there. Why? He says, because when the gospel came to you, it did not come in word alone. It wasn't empty rhetoric. Words bouncing off the ceiling or floating in air. It didn't come to you in word alone. It came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit. And it came in full conviction. In other words, the Spirit of God accompanied the preaching of God's Word and touched the heart thereby bringing that heart into a right relationship with God, whereby the individual perceives his sinfulness in God's sight and sees the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation. This is you, if you aren't a Christian. You need to know who you are in God's sight. You need to understand the peril of your situation, the danger of your state, your hopelessness and helplessness before God and acknowledge God's mercy and willingness to save you if you will turn from your sin and cling to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, coming empty, not offering anything you think you've done or doing could ever do to please God, but coming spiritually barren pleading for God's mercy and God's grace and looking to the Lord Jesus Christ alone who is the Savior of sinners. That truth emerges from these verses. Oh, the darkened state of the sinner and the need for the transforming power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. What I want us to focus on today The time remaining is, as you probably noticed, the statement that is found back in verse 24. and This is why I I titled this sermon, Judging with Right Judgment. I didn't just make that up out of thin air, but it's right there. Verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. If if, If the crowds and the Jews, the people in this text lack anything, it is discernment, it is judgment. The ability to judge. And so here we have this tremendous warning, word of exhortation. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, to help us understand that, I want to ask four questions of the verse. Now, Logan just got worried because he's looking at his little clipboard and he counts one, two, three questions. I made a little change, kids. If you're looking at your clipboards and thinks, oh, the preacher's just... Confused? No, I made a little change. I apologize for that. There are now four questions. You don't have the first one. Oh, it's a surprise. Isn't that exciting? You don't have the first question. I'm going to give it to you. And to really test your mettle, keep you on your toes, I've switched on those clipboards what are the first and second questions. Switch them. I'm going to make the second question number one. The first question number two. The kids understand. The parents are all confused now. Two little changes, kids, as you try to fill in all those blanks and answer the questions. And so the first is this. Are we really supposed to judge? I think we need to tackle that. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right, are we, are we supposed to judge? That's not what I've been hearing. I, I I always, I always thought we weren't supposed to judge. I always thought it was sinful to judge. And I know it's sinful to judge because I'm gonna quote, I'm gonna quote scripture. I'm going to quote the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. So there's no need for this sermon. That's what you're thinking to yourself. We can all go home. Are we really supposed to judge? Christ says no. Here's the problem. and here's, here's something you and I both struggle with. We have a terrible tendency of ripping verses out of their context. And making them say pretty much whatever we want them to say. However it sort of fits our need Or our attitude or feeling at the moment. In Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. The Lord Jesus is not forbidding judging per se. It is not the act of judging that the Lord Jesus is forbidding. It is the attitude with which we judge. And he really tackles head on. Two attitudes which are far too prevalent when we do judge. And the first is this basically he says look when you judge. You are not. You are not to be hypercritical. And so in the second verse of Matthew chapter 7, he says, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so we better be careful when we judge. We better not be overly critical. We better not be hyper critical. We better not be that type of individual who is always seeking, looking for something, anything in the lives of others that they can criticize, that they can put down in an attempt, I dare say it, in an attempt to make themselves look better. It feeds pride. We, if you if you if you. Take an honest look at yourself. If I take an honest look at myself, it is sad, but it is true. It points to the utter depravity of our hearts. We take silent pleasure in the failures of others. Why? It makes us look good. It works wonders for the pride and our and our our sense of self-importance and self-worth and self-value. That's what the Lord Jesus is forbidding. We are not to be like a rhino in a china shop. never seen a rhino in a china shop. But I can imagine what a rhino in a china shop is like. Can't move without breaking something. Sadly, there are far too many people like that around. Can't move without breaking something. Can't utter a word without hurting someone. Why? Because it is spoken from an attitude that is hypercritical. the second attitude that the Lord Jesus forbids is this. We are not to be hypocritical. Verse 3 of Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Yes, judge, but do not be a hypocrite when you do so. That word hypocrisy, in the original language, it simply means without a mask. That's what the word means, without a mask. Why? How do they get without a mask to hypocrisy? Without a mask, the word was used in reference to uh, actors in the Greek drama plays. Uh, You never saw an actor's real face. An actor would wear a mask that depicted the emotion that he wanted his character to express. So if it was a scene in which the character was particularly happy, on goes the happy mask. If it was a scene in which the, the, the character was supposed to be sad, on goes the sad face What's, what's, what's the situation here, though? Those masks don't necessarily reflect what the actor is feeling or thinking. Those masks do not truly reflect what the actor is. And so we are to be without masks. We are not to be hypocrites. Rather, what you see is what you get. And So when it comes to exercising discernment, When it comes to judging, it must be without hypocrisy. Why do you see the speck that is in your own brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? So are we really supposed to judge? Yes, we most certainly are. Scripture commands us time and time again to judge, to exercise discernment and insight. But when we do so, we must avoid these two things. We must not be hypercritical. And we must not be hypocritical it 's a hard sale today. Uh, the need for judgment, this idea of judging with right judgment that 's a hard sale in our society. Uh, people don 't like it by 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 nature there 's a knee jerk reaction against it nowadays. I, I suppose we really need to go back in time to understand it i 'm not going to bore you with a with a history lesson, but you think back a couple of centuries to what's known as the Enlightenment. Some of you may remember that expression from history class or philosophy class. The age of the Enlightenment was simply the age when man removed God from the center of his point of reference. And he relegated God to the periphery. We no longer need God. In philosophy, even in religion, in science, in all of the great questions of life, what the Enlightenment did was simply this. It moved God to the outskirts and it placed God in this man in the center and man became the central point of reference. And so man became the arbitrator. Man became the judge. All the great questions of what is good, what is true, what is knowledge, what is right, what is beautiful. They were no longer lay, laid at the throne of God and God's revelation, but they were laid at the feet of almighty man. Man became judge. But what happened? Well, when you try to build truth upon something that is finite, us... What happens to truth? It can't stay the course. The foundation can't support truth. There are no building blocks. And so as we have hurled through these past two centuries up to the present, we find ourselves now living in a society that is what? Plagued by relativism. There is no truth. Because the only absolute truth, God has been rejected, placed on the sidelines, made a bystander, a fan, if you like, as man is enlightened and goes on his merry way, making himself the measure of all things. so we find ourselves in a relativistic society, relativism, as Don Carson writes, there are no absolutes today, except the absolute that there are no absolutes. And Colson builds on that, Charles Colson. The only authority that now remains is that of private experience. Truth, in any absolute sense, is gone. Poof. It's gone. Now here the Lord Jesus calls on us to not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. It assumes what? There is something to judge by. It assumes there is a standard. It assumes there is an objective reality. It assumes there is absolute truth. It assumes that when we ask questions and we seek to discern and judge between good and evil, truth and error, right and wrong. There is something we can go to by which we answer those questions and exercise our judgment. But as I've already said, that's a hard sale today. You you have to be pretty tough-skinned to judge today. Why? Because sadly, in our day and age, by and large, the gift of judging The exercise of discernment is equated with what? Arrogance and intolerance. You judge, if I were to judge as God's word commands me to, I can expect more often than I can probably imagine to be labeled arrogant and intolerant in this relativistic, pluralistic society. But the command is there. Are we really supposed to judge? Yes, we are. Christ's commandment, verse 24 of chapter 7. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The second question is this. Why? Why are we to judge? The answer, very simple. We live in confusing days. Uh, Deceit, deception, distortion, confusion, they are all a result of the fall. When I was when I was much younger, I used to enjoy going to the to the country fair near to the town where I lived The farmers would gather their poultry and cows and everything else, and they would always have rides and little festivals going on in the fair. And something I used to always enjoy doing was going in, paying my 50 cents or whatever, and going into this one ride, I suppose, for lack of a better word, called the House of Mirrors. You ever been inside a House of Mirrors? And you walk in and you stand in front of the first mirror, 14 feet wide and only one foot tall. I move to the next mirror, suddenly I'm 14 feet tall and only one inch wide. And then I get deeper into the house of mirrors, mirrors everywhere, and I lose I lose all track of where I am, where I'm going, bumping into people, bumping into mirrors, bumping into myself, confusion and distortion. We live in a world, a house of mirrors. We live in a confusing, distorted world. We live in a world in which there is deception at every turn. The flesh, our own sin, deceives us. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? I always have to bite my tongue when someone says to me, well, I'm just going to fall of my heart. Oh, you poor misguided soul. Your heart will lead you to hell. The heart is deceitful above all things, riddled with pride, deceives us. The devil deceives us. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Surely, if you haven't read, maybe you saw the movie or you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course, we have the Queen of Narnia. and C.S. Lewis describes her as follows. The witch could make things look like what they aren't. The witch could make things look like what they aren't. So she places before Edmund that Turkish delight, appearances. And Edmund is just sucked in, hook, line, and sinker, deceived. As he's brought within the control under the dominion of the Queen of Narnia. That, C.S. Lewis, in his wisdom, in his insightfulness, was depicting the devil himself. who disguises himself as an angel of light. Subtle. So subtle. Rarely does the devil reveal himself, his, his atrocious self. Why? Because he doesn't want to waken anybody up from their slumber. He wants to lull people to sleep. He wants people to think all is well, all is safe, all is morally neutral, all is harmless. And all the while he is deceiving, deceiving, deceiving. And oh, the need to exercise judgment. Thirdly, not only does the flesh deceive us, not only does the devil deceive us, but the world deceives us. One of the saddest verses in all of Scripture, Second Timothy chapter four, it's found in I think it's verse ten or eleven. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me from the pen of the Apostle Paul. The last epistle he ever wrote, his final letter, as he languishes in a prison cell, and as he sends his final words of admonitions to his, his younger colleague Timothy, he includes this sorry note, Demas. In love with this present world has deserted me. Lured in. Captured unaware. Attracted. All of these allurements put before him by the world, entrapping him and taking him away. Oh, Christian. Do not be deceived in this day and age in which people speak of the world as being morally neutral. It is not morally neutral. It is there to deceive us. And how we need judgment. How we must exercise discernment to distinguish between good and evil, truth and error, right and wrong. That's the answer to the second question. Why are we to judge? There's a third question or number two on the clipboards. The third question. What are we to judge? Well, how much time do you have today? What are we to judge? The list is endless. I've in my notes here jotted down a number of things. Let me check my watch and do a quick computation in my mind. Let me try, try, to, try to tackle four or five here anyway quickly. What are we to judge? What, what do we really need to get a hold of today and, and, and exercise this, this discernment? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. First of all, doctrine. Uh, we really need to judge doctrine today. Acts 17:11. They, that's the Bereans, receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. That was judgment. That was discernment. We live in confusing days doctrinally. David Wells writes, I have watched with growing disbelief as the evangelical church has cheerfully plunged itself into astounding theological illiteracy. Illiteracy. All you have to do is go to a Christian bookstore. All you have to do is pick up a Christian book catalog. I have to, I have to, I have to be careful when I do it because it really challenges my sanctification when I pick up a Christian book catalog. Because I open it and I see on one side of the page names like Luther, Warfield, Strong, Packer. I'm thinking amen, amen, amen. Then I look at the other side of the page, and I'm not going to name them this morning, but there they are, smiling up at you. (laughs) And, And it's enough, I don't know, it's enough to just send me over the edge. That on one page you have these... These men who by God's grace have sought to defend and uphold the pillars of the faith, the word of God uncompromisingly. And then on this other page, you have these men who so subtly and unsubtly are denying the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And bah, people just run after them like sheep, lacking all discernment. Judge, friend, judge, weigh these things, examine these things to see if they be consistent with the Word of God, the Bible, the Scripture. If they aren't, you're being deceived. And how we must learn to judge doctrine. Add to that leaders. We need to learn to judge our leaders. It sounds nasty, but it's not if it's done properly. You think of what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, let them also be tested. First, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. That goes for elders. That goes for anyone in any position of leadership, great or small, in a local church. They must be judged. There must be great discerning. There must be a time of proving, a time of of testing. We see that throughout Scripture. We see the wisdom of it in human experience. We see it in the words of Christ Himself. You return with me to the text. Chapter 7, verse 18. Look at what Christ says there. It's most most interesting, most illuminating. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. If you want to judge a leader, if you want to judge a preacher, the only question you have to ask is this. Is God glorified? Do I see more of God? Do I see more of his glory, his natural Excellence. His sovereignty, His authority, His power, His wisdom. Do I behold more of His moral excellence? His goodness and truthfulness and faithfulness and loving kindness. Do I see these things? Do I see God? Do I see God's Word? Do I see God's truth? Or as was my unhappy experience not that long ago as I listened to a preacher on the television who began to wax eloquent about God's deliverance, getting my hopes up, waiting for some great discourse on the deliverance from sin and from, from Satan and from this world and what it will be to be adopted. Finally, the consummation of our adoption as sons of glory. Only to hear this preacher go on and talk about how God had delivered him from a learning disability, a sinus infection, And a messy divorce. What is that? Oh, discernment, please. The ability to judge. Verse 18 again. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. We need to judge when it comes to trends. Fads and trends. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 16 and 17. Look carefully then how you walk. As unwise, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Evil. That requires discernment on our part. I said it. Let me repeat it. The world is not morally neutral. Our culture. Yes, there are elements of our culture that can be redeemed. Yes, there are elements of our culture where we can engage unbelievers. Brothers and sisters, there are a great number of areas of our culture where we better pull up tent and run. Because there is nothing there but deception. There is nothing there but allurement. There is nothing there but that which will take us off the track, that which will deviate us from our goal, that which will remove our eyes from Christ. Joshua Harris writes, I believe he's bang on, the greatest danger of the day is the popular media. The greatest danger of the popular media today is not a one-time exposure to a particular instance of sin. It's how long-term exposure to worldliness can simply deaden our hearts. It kills us. Deadens us. It renders us spiritually obtuse, unable to receive spiritual things, unable to taste the sweetness of the divine. Why? Because we're too busy trying to pull ourselves out of the mire. Oh, the need for discernment and for the need to judge. I had many more here. I'm going to have to skip over them and trust that the Spirit of God will take those three and help us to build our own lists and put this into practice. And just hurriedly, quickly, consider the fourth question. How are we to judge? We know why. We know what. How? The answer is tucked away in verse 28, John 7. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. There we have a tremendous revelation. I hope it seeps in this morning. From the lips of the Lord Jesus. God is true. That The, the implications The ripple effects are endless of that great truth. All truth resides in God. The eternal, unchangeable, infinite God. Because God is true. All that He says is necessarily true. And because God is the origin of all truth, that means truth. Many things, let me just impress two upon you quickly. First of all, it means that truth is external to ourselves. We are not the measure of truth. Our traditions are not the measure of truth. My reason is not the measure of truth my experiences are not the measure of truth. My perceptions are not the measure of truth. Man does not stand at the center of the equation. Man is not the final arbitrator, not rationalism, not empiricism, not tradition, not anything else to do with man. God alone stands at the center of all reality. God is true. And therefore, all that he says is true it is true externally to us and because all god is true all that he says is true it is therefore eternally true because god is eternal that's how we judge that's how we judge that is our point of reference that is our our measure our ruler our standard we turn to god's word And by immersing ourselves in the word of God, training our minds through the word of God, by constant exposure to the word of God, we hear and we learn and we discover what is really true. On that basis alone, we're able to heed and obey Christ's command there in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances. Don't care what reason says. Don't care what your experience says. Don't care what you're feeling emotionally. Judge with right judgment according to the one who is true. Let me just leave you with a verse that's tucked away in Hebrews 5, verse 14. The apostle writes, Solid food is for the mature who because of practice, 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 Have their senses, not their physical senses, their spiritual senses trained to discern good and evil. May the Spirit of God, by God's grace, enable us to do just that. That he may grant us wisdom to live in these confusing times for his honor and for his glory.